Hello and welcome to another episode of Gilded Age. I'm Walker Bragman. Today, we interview documentary filmmaker Josh Fox about climate justice. Josh, thank you so much for, for joining us today. It's a real privilege to have you on. Uh, we're all big fans of your work. and um, Thank I'm you. A, I'm a big fan of you personally, having interviewed you before. Uh, I always value your takes. So, and, and likewise, I think that what you've, what you've uh, covered has been really important. So thank you for having me on. I appreciate it. So I, I guess we're going we're gonna to launch right in and, and just ask you straight up, what are you working on these days? Give us, give us the plug. Ah. <laughs> give us the plug. Well, so um, I have a bunch of, I'm, I'm actually extraordinarily busy. I'm working like seven days a week. I, um, even though I'm in very strange circumstances, I'm, um, my, my show, which is called Staying Home with Josh Fox, completely original title, um, which although we're changing it now to Don't Stay Home, Go Out and Protest with Josh Fox. And so that's a thing that's on every day, uh, Monday through Friday, 4.30 p.m. Eastern, 1.30 Pacific on TYT. Um, and on all their platforms, it's on uh, Facebook, it's on my Facebook pages, the Gasland Facebook page. And it started as me just interviewing my friends starting when um, I started to self-isolate in uh, March of, um, middle of March. Uh, and uh, it was, you know, we started out, we had like 50 people watching us on Instagram. And now, um, almost 75, 80 episodes later, we've got 80,000 people watching us a night, a um, couple hundred thousand a week, and uh, it's been picked up by TYT. So it's, it's just basically me interviewing my friends. Um, it just turns out I have a lot of friends um, wow. who are really interesting people. <laughs> you know, people oh, that's great. And, and people who are uh, working on climate change and people who are running for Congress. And, um, you know, we've been doing some extensive reporting on the, on the protests um, that are still continuing. Um, tonight I'm interviewing somebody from Occupy down in city hall. Uh, so we're, you know, we're right, right on it, but, um, the, the, it's called staying home with Josh Fox, your revolutionary guide to the green new deal, which, um, you know, it, it, it so every time, every day we cover a different aspect of the green new deal. And that's everything from renewable energy to sex workers, to um, racial justice, you know, all the different ways in which the green new deal is an intersectional, um, piece, piece of legislation and just inter- ex- intersectional ethos. Um, and I'm also making a feature film, um, because I have been living, I taped this show for, for TYT, uh, one or two days a week. Uh, so I get them all out on, and then, um, in a garage in the middle of the woods where I have internet access and water. But for the rest of the week, I'm living in a one room cabin with no electricity. Um, and I'm doing a, a new feature film about, uh, in a way that sort of recreates the cir- circumstances of Henry Davis Thoreau um, and deals with uh, questions of the economy and coronavirus and misinformation and this, this moment and how our economy is fundamentally tied to white supremacy and oil. Um, and so I don't know really where it's going or what, it's a, what, it's, what it is, but it's in, I was supposed to be doing a live version of The Truth Has Changed, which is my one-man show, and we were supposed to be taping that in New York City in front of a live audience in April, Obviously, that's not going to happen. So those are that's. But uh, so I'm living in this very strange situation where um, 
I have no internet access and no, uh, you know, none of that, none of the normal trappings of, of society, which is actually quite healthy. It's pointing out and how many of those uh, things are really deeply addictive. Well, that's, that's great, Josh. Just don't, don't grow the thorough beard. You know, the next. No, no, I have a <laughs> clippers and I've actually, I've, I've, I've been cutting my own hair since I was 15, which is, you know, why I always wear a hat. <laughs> so I'm not, um, no, I'm not doing that. <laughs> so the quarant- the quarantine for you wasn't uh, it wasn't a big deal. It's like no shave November, but for the whole of every all of spring and summer <laughs> for the foreseeable future. Are are you still out um, on that uh, Delaware River tributary yeah. that gas oh, yeah. Gasland started on? Oh yeah, that's where I'm. Well, uh, I'm in a different that that the film of Gasland was really based on the property that my parents developed in the, the, my house when, when I was a kid. Um, I have uh, protected 50 acres of forest land um, that's in a, an easement um, back in 2012 through 2015. I was starting to I started to buy land that was um, you know could potentially get fracked to in order to protect it, um, and that's near the Delaware River, near um, some of the same woods that are in Gaston, same area. And so I, uh, in 2016, we, and me and my friends sort of as a monument to the Bernie Sanders campaign, we built a tiny house called the Henry David Thoreau civil disobedience love shack. And, uh-huh. um, and, and over the weekend of July it. 4th, 2016, in a sort of, uh, kind of right before the democratic convention as a sort of way to celebrate. And, um, and it has pretty much not been lived in, but it became it's become my refuge as well as the uh, animal sanctuary and, and the, the, the refuge as it is for nature right now. So um, that's that's the story. That's fantastic. I didn't realize that. Yeah. So no, it's, uh, it, well, I keep it quiet. You know, I don't want no, no, really no gas company uh, contracts <laughs> near you. <laughs> well, we actually managed to ban fracking in the Delaware River Basin. We did that. Um, and we, you know, that was actually one of the first major victories of the whole anti-fracking movement. We had a ban on fracking in the, in the city of Pittsburgh in 2010, but in 2011, um, we managed to get the Delaware River Basin protected at the level of the Delaware River Basin um, Commission, which is an interstate compact that is the four governors of New York, New Jersey, Delaware, um, and Pennsylvania, and a representative of the federal government. We managed to get all fracking and all lease, well, all fracking stopped. And then in, at some point in 2015, I believe, or maybe it was 2014, they nullified all the leases. So um, this area is frack-free, and it has been. It's one of the only parts of Pennsylvania that actually is uh, um, free of fracking permanently. Hashtag frack-free. Yeah. <laughs> so speaking of, well, I guess kind of related, um, wanted to talk a little bit about the, the, the great news today that came out of, um, the Dakotas. Um, actually last night I, I was, I was preparing for this and I watched, um, your, one of your documentaries, uh, awake mm-hmm. about the Dakota access pipeline protests from 2016 to 17. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, it was a really moving film and I think, I think it was Thank cool. I, I, there were three, the three parts were directed by different people. Is that right? You were the first and yeah, well, I was at Standing Rock um, quite a bit in 2016 in support of the uprising that was there. Um, I felt extraordinarily compelled to go because it was, you know, it was that moment right before the election um, and uh, after the Bernie campaign had f- sort of finished that Standing Rock became um, this 
cry all across the world, the indigenous sovereignty movement there that was seeking to stop the Dakota Access Pipeline, which is a pipeline of oil that runs from tar sands oil, fracked oil that's, that's oppressing other indigenous people in Alberta, Canada, and that, or, or, or I think also in, as well in um, South Dakota, I have to look into this, but, but the oil is bad oil, <laughs> as, all, as all oil is bad, this is especially oil. bad oil, um, and that oil was, uh, uh, they wanted to build a pipeline that would go directly underneath the main water source for the tribe um, at Standing Rock. Um, and so that water supply also feeds into the Missouri River. It's the headwaters for 18 million people downstream. And the tribe said, no, they said, no, we don't want this. And the tr the, actually, the um, original proposal for the pipeline, which is called the Dakota Access the Dakota Access Pipeline, or DAPL, from Energy Transfer Partners, um, interestingly, Energy Transfer Partners CEO, Kelsey Warren, is a purchaser of one of the Robert E. Lee statues that was taken down um, because we wanted to take down statues of Robert E. Lee. So he bought the thing for a million dollars and has it in his own private town, Lajitas, Texas. So you can get a sense of where the Energy Transfer Partners ideology is at and the links between oil and gas and white supremacy, which were also clear and very much on display at the Dakota Access Pipeline protests. So the, so the tribe put out a call through a lot of different notable people like Shailene Woodley and um, Dallas, uh, Dallas Goldtooth and, uh, and, and, and Doug Goodfeather and, and, and Nako and a lot of other people. And they said, we want people to come here. Which was surprising because not that's not always the attitude, right? And they said we want everyone, all races, all creeds, all colors. We want you to come here and and then we're going to create a camp. And there was a camp called Ocheti Shakoan, which was the camp of the people. Um, and there was a fire lit at the center of that camp. And up at one point, there were eighteen thousand people there, camping out in the cold, freezing November, December, January, February weather in Dakota, access at the Standing Rock uh, as a confrontation. And you saw 500 years of colonialism on display there as the Dakota Access, the police were protecting this, the pipeline and literally pepper spraying, rubber bulleting, macing, putting, writing numbers on people's arms and putting them in dog kennels. I mean, it was an incredible display of racism, uh, colonialism, defending an oil and gas pipeline that had no business going underneath the water supply. And so today, the Earth, Earth Justice and the tribe together in a lawsuit managed to get what they first wanted, which was the, the pipeline to get canceled and, or to go under a thorough environmental review. So the a federal judge today said, we must stop all oil going underneath the pipeline. The pipeline is dangerous. It needs a full environmental review, and a full EIS, an environmental impact statement. And that's a major victory. Yeah, it's great. And um, that comes uh, just a couple of days after the Atlantic Coast pipeline seems to be kind of uh, over let's just yeah they canceled it yeah canceled it do you do you know why was it was it because of just the the decreased demand for oil these days just well, let's really just sense. let's just say this um fracked gas has never been profitable it has never ever been profitable and tar sands oil which is also extremely expensive to um produce uh is also um dependent heavily dependent on sub subsidies so when you have a private company that wants to put a frack gas pipeline and i believe the atlantic coast pipeline was going through the uh, appalachian trail 
and there was huge opposition. And we did a number of different events in support of all the activists, the brilliant activists. Now, see, what you have essentially in both Dakota Access Pipeline and the Atlantic Coast Pipeline and the fracking movement here in PA is what you call not in my backyard activism, NIMBY activism. And that activism is often extraordinarily effective because people have no choice. They're cornered. They have their backs against the wall. They will fight. They don't want a toxic pipeline or a toxic fracking well that's going to hurt their children. And if you string enough of those not in my backyard movements together, well, then you have a national movement. Because what we see now across the, the nation is the oil and gas industry trying to expand and people all across the nation saying, no, we're not going to do this. And I think, um, you know, moments like Standing Rock or moments like when Gasland first came out and the anti-fracking movement was like exploding all across America were moments where consciousness was multiplying and seeing that what we, what we can do is delay and stop these projects um, one by one, which is very difficult strategy, right? So like, for example, with the Keystone XL pipeline, you had Nebraskan farmers coming together uh, with indigenous tribes, and they called these uh, protests cowboys and Indians protests. They had cowboys and Indians come to Washington to see with their horses and teepees. It was amazing. And you saw those activists be very, very, very effective in terms of stopping those individual projects. Unfortunately, there are currently 700 new fracked gas power plants and infrastructure projects that are being proposed for the United States. The biggest issue, though, however, is that when you get communities that are out there and saying, we're going to delay and delay and delay and delay, and these companies have a bottom line, and these companies' gas isn't worth anything because nobody wants to use it for anything, then you, you have a situation where you can put a stranglehold on them. And, and because of the delay, and because you're Xing out territories and saying, we're going to ban fracking in this municipality, we're abandoning that town, you're able to delay often is the strategy of environmentalists, right? Um, because it will lead to the type of situation we're seeing right now where Duke Energy just throws up its hands and goes, well, we're not going to finance this anymore. This is not a good business proposition for us anymore. You've created such hell for us. So it's activism that's directly doing this. Um, but the world is changing. So we're seeing renewable energy outpace um, fossil fuel development in America right now, which is an amazing and wonderful thing. So how do you, how do you make that movement international? Because... Um the United States is obviously not the, the only contributor to, to climate change. And the, the, the predictions, which we'll get to, uh, are, are, pretty, are pretty dire. Yeah, they're very dire. Um, well, I think we're seeing it being an international movement. I think you have international figures like Greta Thunberg, who's come out of nowhere. And all of a sudden, kids, I mean, these, this youth climate movement is the most amazing thing I've ever witnessed. It's growing so fast. Um, and these, uh, the, the young, young people who are saying, we want to have a future. Um, and I saw, so I think you are seeing that happen. I think we're seeing, um, like the anti-fracking movement, definitely, from the beginning, has been an international movement. In fact, we had way more uh, successes in Europe um, and other and in, across overseas than we did in the United States at first. We saw bat fracking get banned in Bulgaria and Romania and Poland, Italy and France, um, Germany and Scotland and Ireland, England. Um, so we, we've seen huge successes uh, in Europe because of the anti-fracking movement, basically from America. America sounded the alarm. I mean, my films, Gasland, Gasland 2, toured extensively. Um, they were on TV uh, in 30 countries. So one of it's spreading awareness through the media, which I really believe in. Um, we saw when Gasland was so popular and in, 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 in on television in 30 countries worldwide, uh, and the, the, the clips were going to hundreds and hundreds of millions of views, right? We saw people 
um, I had requests from all across the world to talk about this from Mexico, from the Ukraine, from Australia. Um, and so media is one way that we can uh, really push, uh, push awareness. But internet, you're absolutely right. International solidarity has to happen. And um, we're in a position right now where you're seeing China and India, which are authoritarian governments. Um, in India, you have a Hindu supremacist government, which is deeply racist and very problematic. Um, and we need to put international pressure. Um, um, obviously, Donald Trump is not going to do that because he's the president and he agrees with these types of insane um, authoritarian schemes, right? And he's a very much a pro-oil and gas president. But what we need to do in the United States is we need to get him out of office immediately and we need to um, organize. This is all about organizing. Um, and right now, organizing is a very difficult thing to do, um, you know, because because we have COVID, but we're still doing it. If, if fracking was never profitable, why does there seem to be so much political will in, in the private sector and the public sector, if there's a line between those two, to keep doing it? Well, um, in the early days, back in the 2005 era, it, it was very expensive. But what um, many economists were saying is that they were going to be drilling into, into the financial markets. So you had companies like Chesapeake, um, which is now just filed for bankruptcy, um, lease huge amounts of land so that they could get financing um, and that they could promote fracking. Uh, but what a lot of people, what I mean by fracking wasn't profitable is that if you take away all of the, it may have been profitable for the companies. It's not profitable in the traditional sense. Gotcha. If you take away all the subsidies that the, federal, that the oil and gas industries enjoy, um, and you take away all of their environmental exemptions, um, then you have something that doesn't make any sense to do, right? The Obama administration propped up fracking because they were really interested in the jobs numbers uh, because the stimulus plan that they created was way too small. So when you had the economic downturn in the beginning of the Obama administration, they were saying that, you know, they were kind of um, being very mealy-mouthed about, about natural gas because fracking was, uh, you know, jobs and they were pushing this. And frankly, um, they were propping it up. The companies are now collapsing. Um, Chesapeake Energy filing for bankruptcy is in a huge indicator of the fact that this was a Ponzi scheme from the get-go. Um, and fracking is extremely expensive. It's incredibly environmentally polluting. And if you, if you can just spread your waste everywhere, well, then you can make some money doing it. If you can get $5 million subsidy per well drilled, um, then you can make money. But what, what, what's happening now is because the, the, uh, the bottom has dropped out of the financial of, of the oil and gas market. And you have all of these regulations that are starting to get pushed as well as fierce local opposition. Um, what's really happening is the, the, hopefully you will see fracking industry collapse. What the fracking industry has done is they've tried to invent new uses for natural gas, right? Fracked gas. And, Frack gas is now about plastics, and it's about power, energy supply, electricity generation. But you're seeing, you know, places ban fracked gas in new buildings, and that's the trend that we're. And we're seeing places decide that they don't want fracked gas power plants; they want um, other ways of getting renewable of, of renewable energy. Um, so that's that's the trend, and I hope that continues. Josh, you've taken you've taken uh, obviously you've taken aim at, at at fracking as sort of the your your main your main thrust uh 
is that because i mean obviously they they were trying to frack on your land and your family's land mm. um mm-hmm. but is it also because you see fracking as sort of the the last bastion of the fossil fuel industry like if fracking goes down they really have nothing else except having to defend like offshore drilling which they've already lost the public yeah battle. it's both no it's a great question um i look before this i was not an activist on the environment on oil and gas i was always an environmentalist because I love the woods and I grew up in the woods and all of that. But like, I was not involved. I was much, much more focused on issues of the wars. Um, my work uh, prior to Gasland was all about the Iraq war, the Afghanistan war, um, because I was a New Yorker and I was, I lived through nine 11 and I was a gardener in the world trade center. <laughs> I, I, um, I was very, very interested in fighting those injustices. And then when the frack, in, frack industry came to our neck of the woods in PA, I said, all right, that's it. This is land that I will die for. I will put my life on the line no matter what to stop this industry from happening here. And, and then I realized that not only was I connected to the Iraq war, it was the same architects of the people like Dick Cheney and George W. Bush who created fracking, who created the wars in Iraq, oil wars, right? And that, um, that indeed, as you mentioned, fracking is one of the last gasps of the fossil fuel industry. And there are four major categories of extreme energy. We talk about extreme energy, meaning much more expensive, much more polluting, much more dangerous, much more extreme. And those are fracking for natural gas, mountaintop removal for coal, where they literally blow the tops off of mountains in Appalachia to decimate the environment, to get a thin seam of coal. Um, in tar sands for oil, where they literally scrape the entire surface off the face of the earth. And they've done this in Canada, in Alberta, um, in an uh, area the size of England. Um, and it is absolutely, if you've ever seen tar sands development, it looks like the hell on earth. And then, of course, as you mentioned, deep water drilling for oil, like the Deepwater Horizon, which is far, far off the uh, continental shelf um, and is very, very deep and very, very uncontrollable, as we saw in 2010 in the Deepwater Horizon explosion. So those four methods, when you have Dick Cheney and George Bush or Donald Trump in the White House, and you can just pollute anything you want, and all the environmental rules are repealed, and you have no fines, you have nothing, and then it, you know, nothing to stop you, then yeah, you go ahead and you, 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 that's the last gasp. Al Gore used to say, instead of heroin addicts shooting in their arm, all their veins are tapped, and now they're shooting into their leg or their eyeball or whatever. Um, and that's the truth. Um, at the same time, because the Obama administration pushed fracking so hard, we are now seeing frack gas and frack, uh, fracking be the number one rising source of climate emissions, greenhouse gas emissions on the planet, which we said was going to happen. And the liberals and the neoliberals and the, the, those people did not listen to us. Um, and right now, if I, as far as I understand, Joe Biden's uh, one of his major environmental advisors is Heather Zeichel, who ran the CEQ, the Council on Environmental Quality, for Obama, and then left to take a lucrative board position at Chenier Energy, one of the top export fracking export companies in America. So that's not a good sign. We're going to have a lot of pressure to put on the Biden. Mark. Mark and I actually did a did a report on on Biden's climate plan, and it does contain language that that says new oil and gas operations. So it says what that there will be that it says, you know, we impose it's imposing regulations on new oil and gas uh, operations, <laughs> yeah, right. existing, existing right. and future, existing and future. That's, that, that's, that's yes. the language. Yeah. And, and Heather Zekal, Heather Zekal was, um, you know, uh, he, she made $1.1 million when she was on the board of Chenier Energy, the liquefied natural gas company. I was in DC that the morning she left. Yeah. I couldn't fucking believe it. I, I don't know if you're allowed to curse on this show. I'm sorry. But, um, how yeah, that, there's fucking the example dare you? Of, 
<laughs> the revolving door, right? Um, we've seen this. There's been many reports, state level, federal level, the revolving door between the oil and gas industry and the people who are supposedly trying to regulate it. Right now, the state of Pennsylvania and the attorney general, Josh Shapiro, has issued a subpoena, or I think it's a grand jury indictment of former Department of Environmental Protection officials in PA for not doing their jobs. John Hanger, the Department of Environmental Protection's um, uh, secretary during the Rendell administration, went to work for the uh, firm that uh, represents the Marcellus Shale Coalition, pro-fracking lobbying organization. Rendell himself, all of these people, the revolving door, they leave government as Democrats, and they end up in the industries that they were supposed to be regulating it's just and they're disaster. supporting rendell was an early supporter of joe biden as i recall um well you know rendell fast eddie i mean as we call him in pa um you know he he, he incredibly corrupt and and never met an oil and gas project he didn't like and they rolled out the red carpet and we're seeing now abs we, we have criminal charges that the attorney general has levied and this and the grand jury has levied against Cabot Oil and Gas and Range Resources criminal felonies, right? That now um, that is a very good thing that we're seeing somebody stand up for this beleaguered state of Pennsylvania. It 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 is interesting that no matter what subject we cover, this revolving door and the link between money and politics seems to be at the forefront, somewhere sure. at the root of everything. <laughs> Well, the oil and gas industry is the one of the top. I would imagine oil and gas industry in Wall Street, the top contributors to all of our. Yeah, they're very, they're definitely nightmare. very prominent. Um, yeah. And then, of course, you know, billionaires like uh, Kelsey Warren, who you mentioned. Um, you know, these right. CEOs give millions of dollars to super PACs that back. Uh, these days, it's more Republicans, um, but. Um, yeah, sure. they're very, you know, they're even, as you say, they're not a very profitable industry, but they're so well connected in Washington. They have a ton of lobbyists. They have trade organizations that give lots of money to elections as well. And so I think they're much better positioned politically than, than the solar industry. But I think that could change hopefully fairly soon. I hope so. I mean, one positive story here is though, when we were stopping to, when we were campaigning, to stop fracking the Delaware River Basin. We were down to the last 48 hours. I personally went to the White House. I, I sat down with five different officials from the Obama administration and from Biden's staff. And I said, you cannot frack the Delaware River Basin. And I poured my heart out. And that afternoon, myself and Bill McKibben um, hatched a plan because we there were five voter, five member uh, body to vote on fracking in the Delaware River Basin. This is a 75-mile stretch of the Delaware River that they were going to put in about 18,000 gas wells. It completely decimated this entire incredible wildlife area, the water supply for New York, the water supply for Philadelphia and southern New Jersey. And there were five uh, votes. There were New York, Pennsylvania, New Jersey, uh, the federal government, and Delaware. And New York was voting no. They said, we don't want it because we don't have regulations yet. PA and New Jersey, which was Tom Corbett and Chris Christie were voting yes. So we had to get the other two remaining votes, the federal government and Delaware. So Bill McKibben said to me, why don't we appeal to Joe Biden? Joe Biden is from Delaware. Joe Biden has a strong environmental record. Joe Biden is the vice president. He could pick up the phone and call President Obama in Hawaii. You know, so, you know, um, we put in, we made a video called Say It Ain't So Joe. I put it up on the Save the Delaware page, myself, Bill McKibben, um, Mark Ruffalo, and we got 10,000 phone calls in two days into Joe Biden's office saying, call the governor of Delaware, call this vote off. 
And he did it. It worked. So Biden is fundamentally tied to the fact that I'm sitting right here in a frack-free area of Pennsylvania. So pressure against Joe Biden works. Pressure against Donald Trump does not work. Pressure against Chris Christie, Tom Corbett does not work. But I have, I am living proof that we, and this whole woods here is living proof that when we fight against Joe Biden, we win. Yeah. And that was something we wanted to talk to you about is kind of what you anticipate uh, if Biden does win in November, what you anticipate his administration doing in terms of energy and environment policy and kind of how you're planning to react to it. I think there's going to be a lot of meetings. Um, and I think that there will, and those, some of those meetings will have positive outcomes. I think as with every president in the history of the United States, they don't do anything for the movement unless we stick it to them. So we have to protest, we have to organize, we have to mobilize. But this, at this point, because we don't have Bernie running anymore, it's a question of who would you rather be protesting, Biden or Trump? And so, I, you know, I'm protesting. But listen, pressure works on this guy. I'm telling you, it, I'm, I'm, this happened. It, it also um, ha- happened at the debate when Bernie Sanders ripped into Biden about fracking. And Biden decided to just blurt out, apropos of nothing, uh, uh, no new fracking. He said no new fracking in the debate, like as if he wanted to be a member of the cool kids club for a second. Do you know what I mean? And like, and, and, and so I, I see that, I see that there's a prom, their promise there. I see that there's promise there. Of course, it also depends on who he, dep- who he selects as his vice presidential candidate, right? If it's Warren, she's supposedly a banned fracking candidate. If it's um, Kamala Harris, she is supposedly also a banned fracking candidate, right? Um, so we can hold these people accountable. That's what we always have to do. Even if it was Bernie, we were going to have to protest Bernie. If you're listening to this on SoundCloud, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your casts, please consider becoming a paid subscriber on Patreon. For five bucks a month, you'll get access to premium episodes, which will often be interviews with politicians, candidates, reporters, authors, and professors. So if you can, please pitch in at patreon.com slash Gilded You have talked about how we can get off um, off fossil fuels entirely, uh, and I've been doing a little bit of of uh, reading on the topic, and and you're probably more familiar with it than than we are. Uh, but in mm. in his book, uh, his 2015 book, Learning to Die in the Anthropocene, Roy Scranton um, argues that the technology is probably not going to save us. Ultimately, that we have a certain amount of global warming that we are going to have to just deal with and that it is going yeah. to be devastating. Um, yeah. And I was hoping to get your thoughts on that. Well, I think there's a big difference between devastating and death of everything. Um, I, I read the book uh, um, about the, and, and I do know that, um, look, my film, um, How to Let Go of the World and Love All the Things Climate Can't Change, um, is an essay on this. So I, uh, meaning, yes, the wildfires will increase. Yes, Swiss cities will be swamped. Yes, we will see infectious diseases on the rise, right? Which we're seeing now. Um, yes, we will see starvation and we will see death and we will see horror. That doesn't mean we quit. Right. <laughs> that doesn't mean we go, oh, you know what? Um, it's all going to suck. So let's just party. 
you know, oh, right. it doesn't mean that. And, and it doesn't mean that we adopt also other insane ideas, right? Which are population reduction, right? Um, Michael Moore and his friend Jeff Gibbs in their movie go, renewable energy can't work. Well, first of all, let me just say this for the record. Renewable energy can power 100% of what is on the planet. The Green New Deal, which is a $16 trillion plan laid out by Bernie Sanders, if we, we could deploy it in the next 10 years, and we would save ourselves a lot of trouble. We can change. If everything, coronavirus proved, we can change. Anyway, we had 20% downturn, downturn in industrial emissions, climate change emissions during coronavirus height. We can change. We have to change. Now, nobody's saying there's a technological magic bullet because we've had the technology for decades. The decades that we've had the technology. It's like, you know, we, we, um, we also have bulletproof vests. That didn't stop people from using guns. What, I'm, what we have to do is not, we have to radically get off of fossil fuels immediately, as fast as possible. But the Green New Deal is not about technology. It's about justice. And justice is one of the things that climate change can't change, right? So is community, so is love, so is uh, uh, innovation, so is courage, um, so is civil disobedience. I guess you know, my, I guess these are the things climate change can't change. So if you want to say like, well, the world is going to end, so I, well, you, you might as well just say like, well, I'm going to die, so I shouldn't do anything <laughs> ever again. Um, no, the no, world is not, is more... the world is not saved all at once. No, my or lost all at once. It's every single day. My question was more about the technology. Like a lot of the problems. Oh, well, that's I've... just nonsense. That's nonsense. I'm sorry. Michael Moore is full of shit. And, and, and in 2015, Roy was probably full of shit too. We outlined back in 20, 2010, 2011, um, with Stanford University Science, how renewable energy can power the entire world without storage. Okay. Solar and wind. Like the oil and gas industry loves to come out and say, oh, well, the sun doesn't always shine and the wind doesn't always blow. So what are you going to do when the wind doesn't blow? And you're like, well, you know, dude, look at how about looking at science? Because wind energy is a consequence of solar energy. So when the sun is not shining, the wind is often blowing. That's the way it works. So when you look at the power curve of wind and the power curve of sun and you match them up, you can get to about 90% of all the things that you need to generate, right? If we reduce emissions by 90% right now, just doing that, you would have a vastly different picture of the future. As of right now, we're talking about the fact that if, we, if we're on track to warm our oceans so much that phytoplankton stop creating oxygen by the end of the century. That means that's two-thirds of all the oxygen on the planet. That's the death of everything on land. That's the death of most of the stuff on Earth, on the, on the, in the ocean. Before the end of the century, okay, this is a, an emergency. So when people say things like, oh, well, we can't do it, it's like, what are you, crazy? It's like, it's like Han Solo in the cockpit of the Millennium Falcon. Never tell me the odds. We're going to do this or we're not going to do this. I'm not like, you know, like, we're not being naive. We're not like going over Niagara Falls in a barrel. We're saying this is actual science. This is actual technology. And that technology works. Are we going to have to reduce consumption of electricity? Or of energy in general, yes, but there's ways to do that. We could get rid of all of the cars in that major was my cities. Next, that example. was my next question. Let's get rid of cars in all major cities. Let's get rid. Let's let's innovate. 
right? It's not just like, okay, well, let's we'll, 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 we'll use all the same stuff we've got and plug it into a renewable energy source instead. And no one will have to change. No, people are going to have to change. You know what they're going to have to change? Things that are bad for them anyway. They're going to have to change things like the way they eat. They're going to have to change things like the suburbs, which is bad for you. You know what I mean? Like you're going to have to live on the planet again. And anything that is more clear from the coronavirus is that the planet is a beautiful and amazing thing that re- it has a resurgence. The sky is blue when you when we stop polluting it. So we have to we have to actually change. And what does that mean? It means racial justice. It means environmental justice. It means Medicare for all. It means a, a, an entirely different way that we deal with society. It means a kind of revolution. I think that that's what the Green New Deal is. But when you sit there and you say, well, because, well, first of all, you're quoting, in most cases, a lot of wrong things that are put out by the oil and gas industry, right? In, in the case of Michael Moore, who come out and said that, oh, uh, solar energy and wind energy is entirely dependent on fossil fuels, and it's just as bad as fossil fuels. Well, there's science that's to prove that that is absolutely categorically not only wrong, but utterly outrageous. Um, so, you know, yes, we're going to suffer things from climate change. There is no question we are going to suffer things from climate change. Huge, huge changes are going to come and they're going to be very, very painful. But if our system is based on competition, greed, racism, incarceration, and violence, then that's the world we're going to live in into a much worse degree. If, so that's our, what if we were... change our values and we say love, community, um, mutual support, uh, uh, justice, Inequality; those are our values. Then we, we we can face the climate change hurdles and get through them. This is sort of like Alex. What you were saying yesterday, like American capitalism is not going to be able to, to survive, or we're not going to be able to survive. I mean, I don't think. Yeah, I don't think we can really save the planet with with American capitalism intact as it is. It's not even just capitalism. It's just those seven hundred frac gas power plants. Right. Even just those seven hundred frac gas power plants. You want those, or you want a life on the in the future? You can't have both. That's the way it's looking right now, for sure. Radical changes. Well, what about like a new a new model of each product every year, like that sort of that sort of consumption, where we're like, yeah, planned obsolescence, like that to me uh, just doesn't seem viable. Well, there's something called cradle to grave, um, you know, development, right, where you really deal with the life cycle of a product. I don't think that there's anything wrong with having a new iPhone every year, as long as you take the old iPhone apart and make it into the new iPhone. You know what I mean? Which is totally viable, right? You can do that. You can say like, okay, well, let's take it apart and put it back together. As long as we're doing this in such a way that deals with the cradle to grave um, uh, impacts. Okay. The big, you know, the big question is how the economy can function and not destroy the planet. Right? That's what Henry David Thoreau was dealing with. The first chapter of Walden is called Economy. And this was in 1850s, right? before the Industrial Revolution was really under any full swing. Right? We must deal with the fact that it is the economy and climate change is, is climate change. It is the economy that yes. is this, this engine of racial justice, uh, injustice. And, the, and it is the economy which is at the root of so much of this. And you're absolutely right in the way that capitalism is functioning, which is throw everything away and get a new one. You know, that's, that's unsustainable, completely unsustainable. Yeah. And what you make clear in your, your documentary, um, how to let go of the world, which I I also watched last night. Um, love the dancing, by the way. Yeah. The dancing is a great intro. Um, I watched it when it first came out and then I I watched it again last night. 
I had to start a climate change movie with a dance sequence because nobody was expecting that. You know? <laughs> it was a long one too. It was, it was impressive. It was good, like Thanks. six or seven minutes, probably. <laughs> um, but like uh, you, you know, a lot of uh, what you make clear is that consumption, obviously, American consumption and manufacturing is a huge problem because we outsource so much of our manufacturing to a country like China that is so dependent on coal and things like that. And so, yeah, it will be a lifestyle change. Oh, maybe we we don't have to you know buy so many damn products all the time. Um, but also if, if, you know, if we get rid of these, these free trade deals, uh, and bring the manufacturing back to the United States, that's going to reduce, uh, greenhouse gas emissions immensely, uh, as well. So I think, you know, it, it's econ, yeah. it's economy and it's economic and trade policy that are part of this whole thing. The thing that, that I think is important is that every single economic decision has to take into account the earth and the rights of nature. It has to take into account that, that we are on a finite planet and how do we deal with that? And that is the opposite of what we're doing right now. Right. And so, so st staying on the economics theme, just do, do you have any hope that the private sector can kind of lead this charge or like I'm thinking of companies like Tesla now Tesla owns solar city, or is this yeah. the province of large governments and we need to just, Oh. Fight the political fight. Well, we see that, um, you know, that the, the private sector is good at innovations, right? I don't think it has to be the way it works. Um, I mean, I think we have destroyed the public sector. I would like to see the public in, in favor of the private sector, right? I think the mm -hmm. public sector should rival the, 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 the private sector. And that is not what's happening right now. Right. Um, so, you know, I, I do think that with existing technology, we, we absolutely can create a, a zero carbon economy. The question is, um, can capitalism do that? I don't think it works like that. I did for many years try to promote um, ways in which the movement could, uh, through you know, the capitalism of renewable energy and the companies like Solar City and so on, could advance renewable energy through capitalism, through consumerism. I don't think it works, and I don't think we have time for that. Um, there's a number of reasons why I don't think it works, but I, I don't even need to get into it. But I will say that the Green New Deal of Bernie Sanders, which I love, is a $16 trillion government plan, right? which means it's not capitalism, right? It's a $16 yeah. trillion dollar government plan that sounds more like socialism and that at the end of you creating all the infrastructure, the energy is free, right? Way, one of the ways why I like to talk about it is call it energy for all, like Medicare for all or college for all. Um, energy for all means once you've created the renewable energy infrastructure, then all you have is maintenance because the fuel... It is free. It's the oil. It's the wind and the sun. It's not oil, right? And so, mm -hmm. so um, I think with the time that we have left, you have to combine modern monetary theory of Stephanie Kelton and others, um, and you have to you have to get that sixteen trillion dollars out of thin air where you buy you you buy fiat, you create the currency, and then you have you know. Um, 220 million new jobs and you have income tax from those jobs and you have the energy itself which is you know tr tr trillions of dollars in income over time right 
Um, and then you, you, you have, we can have nice things. We can have <laughs> high-speed rail. We can have universal broadband. We can have renewable energy. Those are all parts of the Green New Deal, which I advocate for. Um, and I do believe that given the emergency and given what we've just seen with coronavirus, that there is an opportunity if we have a Democratic uh, leadership in the White House to push for the Green New Deal at a very high acceleration. I do think that there's a possibility. I have to believe because otherwise we're in, in so much trouble that I can't even think about it. The, the green now, just yeah, just to, to hit on that, um, you know, we right now we have about two degrees baked in, like that's sort of inevitable. Mm-hmm. Um, and what what I've been reading is that at two degrees the ice sheets begin to collapse, and we have mm-hmm. four hundred million more people who are water insecure, and major cities at the equator become unlivable. And even in the North, heat waves kill thousands of people uh, every summer, 32 times as many heat waves in India um, that last Mm -hmm. five times as long and expose 93 times more people. And that's like the best case scenario. So it does sort of seem like we don't really have a choice. Like our leaders are sort of negotiating with the destruction of of humanity. Um, And in response, you you have states like Hawaii, which is is trying to go green by 20... um, believe it's like 2045 or something uh and but they're having they're having a bit of a a difficult time doing it which is sort of concerning (laughs) considering that they're theoretically a state that has a lot of geothermal they've got hydropower and they've got the potential for wind power um Mm -hmm. what i guess i guess what i'm asking is josh what do we do (laughs) what can what can we do well, the exact opposite of what we're doing now. I mean, we're seeing that the economy is the priority during coronavirus, right? <laughs> right. Not the people. Not the people. We want to stop coronavirus. You pay the people to stay home. That's yeah. the only way out of this crisis. We're going to have to pay people to stay home. Economies of Europe did this, and we've seen them flatten the curve and defeat it, right? Other than that, you have just racist policy, because the New York Times is reporting that we, we have black people and we have you know, uh, Hispanic people dying of coronavirus more, because they're the ones who had to go back to work during the disease in New York, right? So we have to pay people to stay home, and we also have to pay for re- renewable energy, like, pay for it. <laughs> We just have to pay for it. We can't just say, oh, well, we'll wait for the market to do it. Elon Musk will do it. Bullshit. It's not going to happen. <laughs> it's not going to happen because the capitalists, all, way, all they do, half the time, all they do is just pull their money and make lots of money and then the whole thing goes away. You know what I mean? Like, it's not a structural. We have to have an FDR-like mobilization on energy in the United States. If we do it in the United States, we will see other countries do it, and we will. We can also say, "Oh, by the way, we're not going to trade with you, or we're not going to do this with you if, you if we're not going to work on this together, right?" But like the people who know how to do this are already collaborating, right? Ella Joe, who is a Chinese national working for the National Renewable Energy Laboratory in Denver, is as an Ameri- on the American side is helping to coordinate how the solar panels and the wind farms get built and sent here because without China, who's making the solar panels, right? 
So it's an international, it's already an international effort, but it's the government that's in the way. I was on the phone with, with a whole bunch of folks from Bernie Sanders' office and Cory Booker's office right after <clears throat> the hurricanes in the Virgin Islands and Puerto Rico, right? Irene and Maria. And we were developing a Marshall Plan for Puerto Rico that was going to eliminate their corrupt fossil fuel industry uh, power plant and replace it with localized, uh, small capacity, uh, local grid solar. Okay. And that way you would have a, the energy of the future as a response to the collapse of the island because of the of both islands, the Virgin Islands. We had that plan. It was, it was in the Senate and it was d- killed by Mitch McConnell. That would have completely revamped the entire economy of Puerto Rico and the Virgin Islands. It would have d- taken away all their sticks and wires and all the things that they were using, diesel power plants and coal power plants. Um, so this is doable, but it's about the election. And it's about who's in the off in office and it's about how much pressure we put on them you know um and I, I think that that's about constant civic participation um and it's about uniting the struggles of climate change and the struggles against white supremacy right now because those things are fundamentally tied together okay the oil and gas industry is a racist industry they have fundamentally racist we have to have the leadership of the environmental movement and the leadership of the uh, of the movement against white supremacy come together and shut this country down until we stop the dual crises right the dual pandemics of fossil fuels and racism because fossil fuels kill five to seven million people a year every year five to seven million people die of pollution related to the fossil fuel industry on the planet. That's a pandemic that's going to that outstrips the coronavirus by 10 times every single year. And who does it kill? Mostly people of color. It kills people who are poor. It kills people who live in areas that are polluted, right? Cancer Alley in Louisiana, the coal fire power plants right next to black and brown communities in Chicago. The, this is environmental Ecuador. racism and white supremacy. Ecuador, right. No, no question. And so... Those movements have to unite. We have to call on each other um, to strengthen what we're doing here. Um, but the climate movement and the, and the movement um, to defeat white supremacy, to defund the police, abolish the police, Black Lives Matter, we have to come together. Um, and I, and I, I hope that we start to see that in this next moment. Yeah, that's a really good point. And I think it, it is tricky um, because it's always been – I mean – You've obviously been at the forefront of of organizing around the environment, but it's, I think it's been tough up to now to unite different kind of strains of activists, especially because, you know, climate is kind of a a growing mounting, but kind of somewhat slower process. Whereas, you know, police violence against uh, black and brown Americans and native Americans um, is, is stuff that you can capture on a video and it's a 10 second clip and it's, it's so upfront, you know, and people are ready to mobilize immediately. Well, I mean, we did see, we have seen that. Um, we have seen that in the, in the world of fracking and, and certainly the protests in Standing Rock were, were evocative of all of those injustices at once. Right? That's true, yeah, definitely. Um, and, and so we see the same thing happening in, in Louisiana where I've been working with uh, activists against the gas plant 
um, that they're proposed for New Orleans East and against the, uh, the Cancer Alley um, that's right outside of New Orleans where you have all those refineries. Um, you know, it is the black and brown communities that need the support when they are being, when they're mounting those protests. It's, off, it's often that the black and brown community activists are the ones at the forefront getting out there, doing those things. And it is the white suburban communities that need to get behind that and, and unite. Yeah. Um, and I think that, you know, we are starting, I, we're starting to see that with the fracking, right? Because fracking subjected a lot of white, you know, upper middle class folks who uh, don't like being treated the traditional way that uh, third world communities have been treated throughout history. Right. And so there, there, you know, that, that consciousness that has to expand through folks who, um, are, you know, uh, not necessarily involved in racial politics. Hopefully that can be like a gateway for them to understand they have to stand up. Right. We're here in this community and, you know, I've said over and over again, if you are one of those people who protested fracking here, you got to get out in the streets right now and protest for Black Lives Matter. But it is, uh, you know, the, the the communities that are, they are protesting in Cancer Alley. They are protesting in Los Angeles where you have fracking in downtown and in, in, in inner city LA in the Latino communities there. It's just that the white, um, the white folks haven't shown up yet and they got to. That's a great you know? point. I, yeah, I think it's, I think it's really important. Uh, your framework of thinking about this, you know, uh, the climate piece, how it intersects with racial and economic justice to, to think about these things as, you know, inextricably linked. You know, when we, when we were talking about the Dakota access pipeline earlier, it struck me that like nowhere is the, um, you know, old idea of manifest destiny more clear than us trying to build mm-hmm. a, a pipeline under Standing Rock against the will of the people who live there. Um, or anywhere is more clear the the um, ideology of slavery than in Cancer Alley in Louisiana. Um, so I, I have a question that, that kind of leads into um, a question about nuclear energy. Um, and it's about like what I'd summarize as like the energy density argument, right? The idea that because renewables aren't very energy dense, they necessitate a huge uh, environmental footprint in in the form of clearing land for you know solar panel farms or the impact of wind turbines on birds and that the way to move forward is um, to more energy dense fuel sources aka nuclear energy and um, you know they say it's safe I don't know if I believe that but I would love to to hear your thoughts on um, how nuclear fits into this and if it's well, nuclear is problematic because of the waste. Nuclear is problematic because of the um, the potential for accidents, right? So you can never build a nuclear power plant safe enough for it to be statistically viable in terms of the numbers you need to build, right? You're going to have a Chernobyl. You're going to have a Fukushima at some one of these locations because you've messed up something along the line, right? And so, prob- and you don't want an event like that because that's it's really very, very high. Uh, it's a, yeah, it's high a very big, big <laughs> risk for a small thing when we have other technology that we can use. And you know, you want to know what's got a much bigger footprint than wind turbines or solar panels? Um, you know, the rapacious suburban development uh, in America. You have so you know, I'm not talking. You don't you don't want to clear forest lands to put up solar panels or wind turbines, but you don't need to. 
You can put them in the highway division. <laughs> you can put them on the big box stores. You can put them on everybody's rooftops. You can put them on the on the sidewalk. You can put them on the tops of bus stations. You can put them over every parking lot in the United States. And then you can park in the shade. And you have a, an electric car charging terminal right there. I mean, we're talking about intelligent planning, right? Mm-hmm. The problem right now is that intelligence is what's missing. And what the market decides is, is that whatever makes the most money um, for the investors is what the market does, right? And that is not a good idea because what you have is big box stores everywhere. Um, and my, by the way, now those big box stores are in trouble and the shopping malls are in trouble because everybody wants to buy it over Amazon, right? So what are you going to do with all this mess? Um, I love the David Byrne song, Nothing But Flowers, the Talking Heads song. You know, that was a parking lot. Now it's all covered with daisies. Um, we need to see a green new deal and a, and a conscious energy plan for the United States will be one where you're seeing uh, abandoned uh, suburban areas turned back into um, forest lands and wildlife habitats. And, and you know, the folks who are proponents of nuclear energy, um, and there are many credible ones, will say that it's totally doable um, you know, I, 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 the nuclear waste is a huge, huge issue. Um, the human error that's possible with a solar panel is, oh, whoop, it slipped off the roof. Oh, damn. Right. With a nuclear power plant is, oh, no, no, we just poisoned the, poisoned the entire Pacific Ocean. So there's a risk reward. And you'd have to make a ton right of there, them. Right? And you'd have to make a lot of them. At the very same time, let me just say this. Our nuclear 12, power 000. plants... Our nuclear power plants now, I got to get shut down. They have to go away big time. You want to know why? Because a lot of them, like Fukushima, are on floodplains and they're in places where the ocean is rising. Seems like poor planning. Well, (laughs) I mean, it was a good plan if you could just use that ocean water to back flush out all of your coolant or whatever, right? If that was the capitalist model, which was like, let's just make this this as um, cheap as we possibly can make it and reasonably safe and da 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 But now, you're, you know how long it takes to decommission a nuclear power plant? Like 30 years. We've got to start decommissioning them now along the right. East Coast. There's at least a dozen of them that are, in harm's, that are in potential harm's way if we don't slow down the rising seas. Not to freak you out even further. Well, but you yeah, know, having lived in the sh- in the shadow of Indian Point my whole life, right? So. Yeah, there you yeah. go. <laughs> and that was what. But but see, this is what they always do, right? They always say, "Well, if you don't want fracking, then you're going to have to have Indian Point, or if you don't want the frac gas power plant, then well, oh, you're going to have Indian Point." So they pit one group of activists against another, and that's like what Governor Cuomo just did, actually, with CPV, this uh, corporate power. I think I call it corporate power vultures. I can't remember the actual name, <laughs> but like um, the, the, this frack gas power plant in upstate New York is like, well, if you don't want that power plant, well, we're going to have to keep it in point open. You know, it's like, no, no, and no, that's not what we have to do. In fact, we have to do everything opposite of what you just said. We have to have 50% of all streets in New York City free of cars. We have to make sure that we're building green rooftops. We have to make sure that we're building power uh, solar panels on all of the median strips of every single highway in New York State. If you've done that, then let's talk about nuclear, right? If well, you've sounds, done the math, it's, it's, or you want to build a huge offshore wind farm, which, by the way, would also 
be a protection of our coastlines. Okay, there's a study that shows that if you put in enough wind turbines offshore of a major city like New York and New Orleans, you can actually cut the storm surge of a major hurricane by 60%. Wow. wow. Yeah, that's, that's int- a better, that's, that's way better than a seawall because the seawall doesn't pay for itself, right? Electricity from those w- offshore wind and there, and that stuff is actually good for the ocean. Anyway, look. So um, it sounds it's yeah. it sounds like what you're saying, Josh, is that we can we can power with renewables, but we but in order to do it, we have to make some changes that 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 politicians aren't aren't talking about making because maybe they're not popular, or maybe people are you know pe- people don't want to hear them. But Polit- like yeah, politicians always say something like, "Well, what cut in emissions will my constituents go for?" But right. that's not what we, we need right now. We need to, right. to obey the science, okay? And politicians are not revolutionaries, and thank God revolutionaries are in the streets, and revolutionaries have actually changed the way politics works, like Bernie Sanders and AOC, right? Uh, in, the, in the words of Naomi Klein, you know, when the Great Depression hit, they had to I- make, it, make up this idea of the New Deal, Right, the greatest job stimulus program ever ever happened in the United States. They had to dream up the New Deal. Well, we already have the Green New Deal written out. It's already there. <laughs> it exists. It's not as if the greatest minds on earth have to figure out how this is going to work. Um, it's already there, and all we have to do is to have majority of Americans support it, and we also have to defeat the intrinsic power of the white supremacists and the fossil fuel industry in our government, which is a part of the deal. Yes. Well, it already is, it is a popular. part of the deal. I mean, the green new deal is already pretty popular. I mean, some data for progress polling that I've seen, um, has it quite popular already. And compared to the scale of the problem, it's conservative. Like the green new deal is, it's a great plan and it's a great start, but like, we're still going to have the fallout of climate change. We're still going to have these issues. It's just how much do we mitigate? Well, how much can we prevent? And in terms, in Tim De Christopher's analogy, which I love in my, uh, I don't remember if it's still in the film or if it didn't get in the film or not. There's the two ships. There's the ship that sinks fast, and then there's the ship that sinks slow. When the ship sinks slowly, there's a chance for morality to come into view. Women and children first. Everyone to the lifeboats. Orderly. Let's go. You know, the captain may have to go down with the ship because there may not be enough light bulbs, but there is not a human element added to the crisis. A ship that sinks fast, it's everybody for themselves and a mad scramble in which the most powerful and violent survive. That's the difference we're talking about. Well, Josh, I, I definitely appreciate you you coming and talking i do too thank you i speak for i think i speak for uh my two colleagues here it's been informative it's been it's been uh riveting and we hope that you will join us again anytime Uh, let me know yeah um tell tell everybody where they can find you and uh Uh, sure so all of my movies during coronavirus are up for free at joshfoxfilm.com um, joshfoxfilm.com you can watch Awake you can watch How to Let Go you can watch Gasland you can watch Gas Work um, there's two movies that I've made that you can't see there but um, uh, and uh, so staying home you can watch on my Facebook page the Gasland Facebook page 
Um, you can watch that on TYT and all their platforms. Just check, uh, go to TYT slash staying home or something like that. Um, and you can watch those episodes. We have had amazing people on like Nina Turner and Reverend Barber and, um, uh, you know, all Tommy Sunshine and all sorts of fabulous uh, musical guests and um, a lot of phenomenal musicians from New Orleans. Great. Really, it's good. All right. Thanks, you guys. Thanks so much, Josh. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks so much, Josh. All right. Appreciate it. Take care. Take care. Take care. Okay, bye. Audio editing by Alex Koch. Original music by Direwolf.